0: Let me move this camera real quick, if I may. What's that? Exactly. Exactly. Not my problem. Good morning. Good morning. We are in the book of Acts, as Tom just read. We are going to be looking at the passage where he started at verse 23, and we're actually going to go all the way through to the end of 24. But I only wanted him to stop at uh, twenty-one, which is where he stopped at, which is good. Um, but before we get started, let's have a word of prayer, and then we are going to spend some time in this text. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you again for the opportunity that we can be here this morning. I pray as we work through this text that we will not merely see it as a as a historical record. It certainly is so, but I pray you will help us by your Spirit to see it as much more than just merely a historical record that we can look at as some some recent or some sorry some distant. Uh, dusty history of, of a long ago era. I pray you will help us to learn that you have much more important things to communicate to us than that. And so open our eyes to see, and change us, and draw us close. Help us to worship, help us to appreciate, help us to examine ourselves, and Lord, I pray you will help us to love you, that your spirit will be at work mightily in us for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. If you were with us last week, either online or or here well you couldn't have been here because we didn't meet last week so if you were with us online last week uh, you will know um, as several people have commented to me about that was a lot of background material and there was a lot of background material It was very purposeful that we went through all that background material at one fell swoop because that background material we went through last week will serve the foundation for everything that comes forward if you remember last week if you listened at the message last week You'll remember that I mentioned that from the beginning of the study last week all the way through to the end of chapter 28, the end of the book, it's primarily a continuous story. It's like very repetitious, but always different perspectives going on throughout the repetition. What I mean by that is from here on out, Paul is going to be giving defenses of himself repeatedly. There are some exceptions where he's on journeys to go to the next place where he's going to give a defense of himself. And it's not really a defense of himself, but it's a defense of the gospel, a defense of, as, as the scriptures recorded in the book of Acts, a defense of the way, or to be more specific, a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's really important that we recognize that. So I'm not going to go verse by verse through our section uh, that we're looking at this morning. We're going to highlight and get into the main part of the text we want to address. And I will occasionally remind you, perhaps, of what we looked at last week. Uh, we will probably also look at what we saw throughout the entire story in the book of Acts briefly. Uh, but before we get there, um, I need to ask you some questions because I think it's important that we ask these questions uh, when we look at this text, or before we look at this text. So let me ask you a couple questions. Question number one, when you meet somebody for the first time, y- you don't have to answer it out loud, obviously, but when you meet somebody for the first time, What kind of questions come in your mind about them what kind of things do you think about with regard to them when they are introduced to you for the first time whether they are introducing themselves or you're introducing yourself to them or someone else is introducing them to you or vice versa what are some of the things that come into your mind question-wise because obviously you know nothing about that person right so obviously what has to come is questions in your mind about who that person is what do you ask yourself? What kind of questions are you thinking about? What kind of things are you intrigued by? Question has a lot of questions, but it's all summed up in one question. Secondly, when you see someone you know, whether it's someone at work, family member, friend, neighbor, acquaintance but you know them at some level. What kind of thoughts do you have about that person? And I'm being generic on purpose. What kind of thoughts do you have and questions you have in your mind about that person or those people? Obviously, you're going to know a lot more about a relative, most likely, than you will about a neighbor or an acquaintance or even a coworker. What kind of questions do you have? Where does your mind go? This, if I may put both those questions into one question, where does your mind go? Where does your mind race to? And the reason why I ask the question is because I think the answers to those questions can be quite telling, not about the person you're thinking about, but it can be quite telling about you. As a matter of fact, it can be very telling about you. So let me get a little more specific in my questions. When you meet somebody you've never met before, how soon in your mind does the question pop up, I wonder if this person is a believer. I wonder how quick that question pops into your mind. Second question with regard to that statement, that that question, what kind of things precede that question in your mind? What kind of other questions precede that for you? Because if I may just say this, I think it says something about us. Because when, when we meet somebody, say, for example, in our light of our discussion for the first time, the questions we are thinking about with regard to that person tend to reveal something about us, doesn't it? It tends to, and I'm, I'm being general but it tends to i didn't say it always is the case but it tends to perhaps reveal priorities doesn't it wouldn't that make sense for example if i've never met ken before since you're you know ken is always one of my targets ken and charles because they both sit in the front row <clears throat> if i meet ken for the first time and i'm starting to Introduce myself to him and he's starting to introduce himself to me. If one of my first thoughts, just as a, for sake of example, if one of my first thoughts are, I wonder what his po- political persuasion is, does that say something about me? We don't usually think that way, though, do we? We are thinking more along the lines, it just helps me to understand who that person is more, right? But it really does say something about me, doesn't it? Let me give you an example. If I have no interest at all, none, zero, zilch, nothing with regard to sports, if I had absolutely no interest about sports, do you think I'd wonder where Ken is with regard to sports? You think that'd be really high on my list? It may show up eventually, but usually that's going to be more informed by as I get to know him, I find out he's really into sports if he was, right? Then I'd start thinking those kind of questions. But that would not show up on my radar screen, would it? Because it's not at all interesting to me. As a matter of fact, I would argue if, it's, if, if sports is marginally interesting to me, do you think that maybe more important things to me are going to start showing up earlier in my thought process and my questions in my mind about Ken wouldn't that make sense the things that are really important to us that are really valuable to us they will start showing up real early whether I speak them or not they're going to start showing up real early in my mind that's why I didn't say what questions do you ask what do you probe about I asked what kind of questions and thoughts are coming up in my mind as I meet Ken for the first time it's an important question about me not Ken correct? Because it's revealing to me about me. Which is why I asked the question, what do you think about? What questions do you have when you first meet somebody? And then, to go to the second question, major question I asked, let's say I've known Ken for years, which I have. And I stopped down at his shop to talk to him. I still come up with questions, right? In my mind, don't I? How's Ken's day today? That makes sense, doesn't it? I wonder how Ken's doing today. I wonder if Ken's having a good day or a bad day today. That makes sense, doesn't it? And I ask that question in my mind, and I probably even ask it to Ken, won't I? And the reason why I ask it to Ken is why. It's pretty easy, because Ken's important to me, and I wonder, I hope his day is going well. Does that make sense? So it's important to me. It says something about me, unless it's just some sort of perfunctory, how are you? And I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about when I ask the intentional question and probe the intentional idea, it says something about my care for Ken, doesn't it? Now, it may be misguided, right? Or it may not be, but it does say something about me still, doesn't it? So I go back to my first two questions. Whether it's somebody you just met for the first time or somebody you're in a relationship, whether it's family, friend, neighbor, co-worker, whatever it may be, What kind of questions do we find in our minds about them? I would submit to you that those questions that come up in our mind say dramatic things about our value systems. It just does. It says something dramatic about what's valuable to me, what's important to me. And that can be really encouraging to us Or it can be what? Really convicting. Right? It can be really encouraging or really convicting. Now let me throw one more thought in there before we get into the text itself. Where on your question list to the one who you just met, where in your question list in your mind Does it show up? I wonder if that person I'm meeting for the first time right now is a believer. Where does it show up? Maybe I ought to ask a different question. And the different question is, what? What do you think? Does it show up? Does it even show up? Does the question, the thought, the concern, does it even show up? In our thinking. And then, I'm going to use you as an example again, Ken. I go over to Ken's shop. We've been friends for, how many years has it been, do you think? 15 years. I show up at Ken's shop. Where, and I know because I know Ken, is that he's a believer in Jesus Christ. So I don't have to ask if he's a believer in Jesus Christ, correct? But I can still you think there should be some spiritual thoughts there spiritual questions popping in my mind what kind of spiritual questions do you think should be should be in a believer's mind when they get together with a another believer who who they're close to what are some questions you think should should be showing up on the radar screen or on the computer screen of our minds what are some questions you think should be there you can answer that anybody how's your walk right how's your sanctification going how are you growing and changing you think that whether I verbalize that at that moment or not that's not the point again I'm talking about thoughts right should should we not expect that kind of a thought to show up shouldn't we should we not expect if we're believers that that kind of a question should show up relatively early on our the computer screen of our minds what are the questions do you think are appropriate in this situation between Ken and I yeah prayer and is there any, any way I can help you spiritually you think that should show, start showing up on the on the computer screen in our mind pretty quickly yeah I think so I don't think so any other questions anybody can think of <laughs> are you a five-pointer or a four-pointer right <laughs> <laughs> yeah what's your tribulational view right <laughs> how about how about this thought what have you learned from the scriptures lately You think that'd be a good question to ask what has God taught you through the scriptures lately you think that's a good question you think that should probably show up on a radar screen somewhere on the computer screen of our mind can I ask you a question? Why doesn't it? If it doesn't, I assume for most of it, it most of us, it probably doesn't as often as we know it should. Why do you think it doesn't? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which. Which again says something about us, doesn't it? Yeah. It says something about us again. Maybe it's because we're uncomfortable. I don't know. All, I mean, there's a variety of answers. Maybe it's because we're uncomfortable because maybe we're not fellowship with Christ the way we ought to. Maybe we're not learning anything. We have nothing new that we've learned from the scriptures lately. Maybe it's because we have not been walking faithfully. And it's uncomfortable to say, hey, what's going on in your life? Because Ken may ask me, "What's going on in your life?" and stuttering is not fun, is it? In those settings, stuttering and stammering is not fun. It is not comfortable, is it? And with someone we don't know, those questions—same thing. Why don't we? Why, why aren't the questions there? And because the questions are there, eventually, you know what's going to happen. With the questions are there, right? What's going to happen if the questions actually are on the computer screen of our mind? you're going you're to start bringing those questions to light, aren't you? In a variety of ways. It's going to happen. The, if the questions are there, they're going to come out. Aren't they? Because in our heart, it's going to come out. Ultimately, we could argue if those questions aren't showing up on the computer screen of our mind, so to speak. It's because other things are. Right? Because other things are. And if other things are showing up and these type of questions, and I'm not talking about these specific ones, I'm talking just these type of questions, if these aren't and others are, it's because that's how we've programmed our priorities in our heart. Exactly. It's because it's revealing to us that our heart is elsewhere. Does that make sense? Our heart, heart is hot after something else. We can't miss it if we go back just a little bit in Acts, right? We have these these supposed Christians, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who right after they're declared as believers, it says they're what? They're zealous for the law. Is there evidence that that was a priority to them in the text? Yeah, there's evidence, right? I mean, they're going after Paul right away. And nobody's defending Paul. The evidence is really clear. We get into this chapter. Paul has been arrested. He almost got beat. He got he got bound, and uh, then once it was declared, once Paul declared that he was a Roman citizen, he was released from his bondage. He was still being held, but he was being released. And then um, the the um, Tribune brought the uh, leaders of the of of the uh, of the Jews together to talk about this person, Paul. And Paul gives his first defense that we saw last week, which brings us to verse 23 and following the, uh, there was a, as you found, we found last week, there was a plot to kill and 40 people had taken a vow to not uh, drink or eat until they killed Paul. That's a, a pretty short-lived vow, isn't it? I mean, realistically, you're talking, you better kill him in three days or you're going to die. It's a, it's a pretty serious commitment. It does make one wonder, how did they get out of their vow? Because <laughs> Paul didn't die. <laughs> and there's, I mean, they may have died. They may have died from not drinking, but I suspect they got out somehow. In any case, um, so we come to our text this morning. And uh, we come to verse 23, and you see that the tribune, once he hears from Paul's nephew that there's a problem, that there's this plot he gathers together 470 soldiers all told if you add it all up to keep Paul safe as he begins a journey all the way to Caesarea and so that's what happens in the middle of the night starting about 9 o'clock at night these soldiers 470 soldiers start heading towards Felix up in Caesarea and, of course, you see the letter from 26 and following the, that Tom read this morning, the letter from the Tribune to the Governor Felix. I want you to notice a couple things about that before we move on. It's kind of interesting. It's an aside, but it's really interesting. <clears throat> this man was, to be seized, uh, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. What's, what's pregnantly missing out of that statement? that he was going to beat a confession out of him, right? And he was going to, and he already bound him, right? I mean, those are both missing. He conveniently leaves that out to the governor because if he told that, he would be seriously in trouble. So, exactly. And so he makes himself out to be a, a hero to Felix, right? It is interesting, our self-serving nature, right? Exposed for all to see. Um, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the, char- uh, the charge for which they were accusing, I brought him down to their council. I found out that he was being accused without, about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So the, the uh, tribune declares to Felix that he is innocent of any violations of, of, of uh, Roman law. That's what that means. He is innocent of any uh, violation of Roman law. And then he goes on verse 30, he finds out about the plot, and so he sends him to him and the reason why he sends him to Felix is because probably twofold. Number 1, this is a way out of his, his trouble because he can present himself in a better light, right? He can he can it, it's it's called damage control. I can I can do the damage control by sending him there and sending him an official letter that says all the great things cuz cuz Felix is going to believe me more than the Jews who may say who may also say that that he was bound Um, by Felix, so they can save their own skin, Felix is going to believe me before them. Roman citizen to Roman citizen. Um, And also because where Paul is currently in Jerusalem, it's much harder to protect him than it would be in Caesarea. So, figure send him off to Caesarea so he will be protected from a mob getting absolutely out of control. Because that would fall back on uh, the Tribune again. So we come to verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to, uh, to Antip- Antipatris, which is about 35, 36 miles away from Jerusalem. And then it says in verse 32, and, uh, uh, the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. The reason why they returned the next day, but the horsemen continued, the 75 horsemen continued, was because the journey from Uh, Jerusalem to Antipatris is a very dangerous journey. The the road in that day and even today you can see if you ever go down that road that there are many places for ambush. Once you get past Antipatris it's just wide open and so they didn't need the protection to protect him. Plus they're moving further away from those who had vowed. And so that's what's going on there. That's what that simply means. Everybody goes back except for the 75 soldiers. (coughs) They get to Caesarea verse 33 and present uh, Paul to uh, Felix, Felix reads the letter, asks, as you see in verse 34, where he's from when he learns he's from Cicilia, or Cilicia. He says, I'll give you a hearing. And the reason why is because Cilicia is under Felix's authority. And so because uh, Paul is a Roman citizen, Felix doesn't have any option. He has to give him a, a, a hearing. He needs to give him a trial. It must happen. But he says, when your accusers arrive, he'll do this. That's the end of, verse, uh, of the verse, end of chapter 23. And so he commands him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Uh, the praetorium is where the soldiers lived. So it's, he's not in jail. He's basically in another barracks is where he's at. That comes to chapter 24. Five days later, finally, the high priest shows up, Ananias, and he comes with some elders, that is from the council, and a spokesman, this person called Tertullus. And Tertullus, most likely as a spokesman, was a a hired attorney, just so you're aware. They brought an attorney to do all the legal work uh, for the trying of of, um, Paul. So they lay their their case uh, before the governor um, about Paul, verse 2, uh, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus begins to accuse him, and Tertullus lays out the facts of the of the of the charges. So you'll notice what he says. It's interesting how Tertullus approaches um, Felix. Since through the, uh, I'm sorry, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since you're for, by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. What does that sound like to you? Brown nosing, he's kissing up to him, isn't he? Even more so when you find out who Felix really is. Felix was a slave who was set free, and once he was set free, he was able to obtain, by purchase, a uh, citizenship. Okay, and once he obtained a citizenship, he worked his way up in in um, uh, the right connections, the right areas to be rightly connected to all the important people, and eventually he got promotion after promotion after promotion, and became a governor. As a governor, however, he was not a very good governor. As a matter of fact, um, um, oh boy, my mind just went a blank. went blank. What's the um, Josephus? Thank you. Josephus talks about. Um, about Felix. And the way he describes Felix is very interesting. Basically, what what, uh, uh, Josephus says about Felix is this. He was born a slave and lived his early life as as a slave, was set free and became a Roman citizen and never stopped thinking like a slave. But what he meant by that when he said never stopped thinking like a slave is this. In never stopping thinking like a slave, it wasn't that he was thinking about himself as a slave, but he was thinking about everyone else in light of what he knew, and all he knew was slavery. And so he was treating everybody else like he was once treated. He was a horrible governor, and as a matter of fact, shortly after these events took place, he was removed from his governorship. He was so bad, he abused people verbally and physically all the time disrespectful of everyone except for those over him so it becomes that becomes very insightful as we go down the text and learn more about paul's relationship with felix which we'll see in a few minutes so felix is here and tertullus is speaking to him and what he says to tertullus is absolutely lies in every way as a matter of fact the truth is 180 degrees outside of what tertullus describes Be that as it may, I'm sorry, lawyers and politicians haven't changed much. That's right. Then he goes on in verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found, and then he goes on and gives three charges against Paul. Charge number one. We have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. That's, That's charge number one. He is stirring up Jews and riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Charge number one. Charge number two is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And when he says the sect of the Nazarenes, he's referring to who do you think? Christians, and that is more specifically people who follow the Nazarenes. Does that make sense? Who follow Jesus, who believe in Jesus. He calls it a sect. And a sect, you need to understand, means something a whole lot worse than what you think it means. In in Luke's day, in in this time frame, first century day, a sect is a heretical group. A group in grotesque error. Condemned error. What's that? A cult is a great way to put it. In that day a sect would have been a cult it's not a good thing to be labeled a sect in that day was not a good thing so that's what that's what they're calling the followers of the Nazarenes and more importantly in this trial they're calling Paul a cult leader and then the third charge in verse 6 he even tried to profane the temple but we seized him and what, what they're referring to in the third one is the original accusation that he brought a Gentile into the temple? So he'd profane the temple. Now, it is important that we recognize that all three of these charges are very political charges. All three of them are incredibly political charges. They're choosing to describe these charges very specifically so that it would force Felix's hand to condemn him politically and charge him and have him killed. What, what are the charges politically? Well, the first one, stirring up riots throughout the world. When he talks about throughout the world, he's talking about the Roman world. Stirring up riots among the Jews would be absolutely abhorrent to the, to the Romans because one of their high priorities was to keep the peace in their land. So if they're stirring up riots, that's a political issue because they don't need any riots. Number two charge, again the uh, sect, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, the Romans, I've mentioned this before, but the Roman government would only have certain religions that were identified as acceptable and everything else was against the law. Judaism was acceptable. If the the followers of the Nazarenes, this, quote, sect of the Nazarenes, is disconnected completely from Judaism, it would be an unapproved religion, therefore it would be illegal and a violation of the law, and therefore it could be condemned and destroyed that make sense so it's a political call a political charge and then the third one he even tried to profane the temple is again a political charge because the the Jews I'm sorry the Romans as we talked about before have given already given uh, the Jews the right the and it's the only place they had the right if someone profanes the temple the Jews could kill that person it's the only place for the Jews the only reason why Jews could kill someone is for that reason they violated the Roman law with regard to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And so basically what they're arguing for and the third one is turn him back over to us so we can kill him. That's basically it. That's the charges. And then they go on and say, but we seized him. And then verse 8, by uh, by examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And so basically he said to Felix, so we're not going to say anything else. We've given the charges, but you go ahead and deal with it. And you're going to discover the reality of it. And the reason why they're probably doing that is because they cannot themselves make the charges stick. They're hoping that Felix will think politically and assume what they're saying is correct and then read everything from that perspective. And if they do read, if Felix reads everything from that perspective, Paul's doomed. Does that make sense? Paul's doomed. But then... Paul does, or Felix does that very thing. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, which is not what the Jews wanted. The Jews wanted him to do what? They wanted to accuse him, but then they wanted Felix just to do what? Privately examine him, not just let him speak. They wanted him to do an active questioning to figure out where he was at. But what does Felix do instead? Felix says, go ahead, speak, Paul. I want to hear your side of the story. Just go ahead and speak. So he gives him free reign. And so Paul basically gives his defense, which we're not going to walk through. You can walk through it yourself. Basically what Paul does in his defense is the same thing he did before. He lays out for him this idea that here's the truth of the matter. It's the same thing I said to the Jews before in Jerusalem and to the, to the, um, uh, to the tribune. This is the facts. Here it is. You can examine it yourself. And he lays it out very well, doesn't he? He even gives a time frame. He gives, he gives, a, he gives a, a, a time scale. Uh, in 12 days, he says, this is what's happened, and, and this is what I was doing. There's no way I was stirring up any riots, and he wasn't. He was doing nothing. So he, he lays it all out, and, and, and he, and he, but in verse 14 he says, But I do confess this. But this I confess to you, that according to the way that is the following of Jesus Christ, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets. In the prophets, so he says, listen, I am part of the Nazarenes. I agree, but with regard to that, that those who are true Nazarenes, Nazarene followers, Jesus followers, we're all about the Old Testament. We're all about the Old Testament, and of course, his point is because we believe that Jesus did what. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled the Old Testament and the prophets. Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, which tells you that most likely the Sadducees aren't here in this, this trial in Caesarea. So verse uh, 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience both, uh, toward both God and man. What he, what he means by this in verse 16 is not that he's perfect. It means he's a confessor. He confesses his sins both to God and man. And he's also pursuing righteous living. He's pursuing glorifying God in all things. Does that make sense? So that mo- I'm just trying to get us caught up here. Verse 17, after several years, I came back to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. What he's referring to in verse 17 is twofold. Maybe threefold. Number one, he's bringing money back to the Christians from Corinth. If you wonder about that, you can read it in First and Second Corinthians because it is in both books. That's the alms he's talking about there. Um, and when he says present offerings, it may be two things. It may only be one thing. Certainly it is offerings of praise that the Old Testament talks about repeatedly and the New Testament does, offerings of praise. But it could also be offerings that were being presented that are connected to the rites of purification he could be offering some some um, some offerings for that as well so that's what he's referencing in verse 17 verse 18 he points out while I was doing this they found me purified in the temple without any crite or tumult what is he doing he's saying I wasn't creating anything I was going through a seven-day rite of purification which is what James and the elders recommended he did right and he did that and he said when they found me there what was I doing? I was offering offerings and I was praying. That's the process. And, oh, cutting his hair. That's, he said, I wasn't doing anything else. There was nothing else going on. But some Jews, and he connects it to Asia, those that same Jews that were traveling around following him, causing all sorts of problems. But some Jews from Asia, and I love verse 19, they ought to be here before you and make any accusations should they have anything against me, because they're the ones who from the beginning have been making accusations. Or else let these these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing. The only thing he said I did at the end of, of this section, the only thing I did that caused any problem at all is that I declared I believe in the resurrection. And of course you remember, The conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees over that issue it is respect to this to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day and I love how he closes this uh, verse 21 out when he says it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day what is he really talking about is he talking about generic resurrection in the end The, the the prophecy that That before the judgment, there'll be a resurrection? Is that what he's talking about? He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Because if the rest of the resurrection is true, then you shouldn't have a problem with the resurrection of Christ. The only people who should have a problem with the resurrection of Christ is who? The the Sadducees, exactly, because they don't believe in a resurrection. Certainly, they should have a problem with the resurrection of Christ. But the Pharisees shouldn't theologically have a problem with the resurrection of Christ. And so he says, I'm here before you because I believe in the resurrection. (laughs) But some of these people. Yeah. Well, the only reason why I say that they probably would not be here, the Sadducees, part of of it is because of um, the statement in verse 15. Good question, though. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection. Does that make sense? The Pharisees would absolutely accept that. The high priest would absolutely accept that, but the Sanhedrin wouldn't. Yeah. No, I think these elders are probably the Jewish elders with with the high priest. Yeah, yeah. Good question, though. Yeah, I believe these elders are probably the, the high priest elders. Okay, so... We come to verse 22, and we find uh, Felix uh, at the end of his examination says this. this I'm going to read the whole section here. But Felix, having rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, "When Lysias, the, tri- the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case." Then he gave orders to the centurion that they should that, that he should be kept, that is Paul, in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was who Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius, Festus, and desiring to to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is where the whole storyline gets really interesting. Felix listens to Paul's defense, and it says in verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, so for some reason, whether it's through his wife, Drusilla, or whether it's from somewhere else, maybe the dispersed Christians who were in Caesarea, perhaps he learned basics of the way of Christianity, the way of Christ. So He has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. That doesn't mean he's saved, he just has a relatively accurate knowledge of the way. He puts them, the elders, Tertullus and the high priest, he puts them off saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. There's no evidence that Ly- Lysias ever came. But basically, the trial's over and there's no decision. The trial doesn't reconvene until two, after two years is over, Felix is gone, and Festus takes over. Then Festus puts the trial back on again. But at this point in time, the trial's done. So he sends them away. And then, of course, verse 23, real quickly, he gives them orders to the, centur- he gives orders to the centurions that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty. In other words, he's not, un- he's not in prison. And people can come and go freely and minister to him and be ministered to by him. And so he has got freedom, but he's kind of living with, with the soldiers. Um, that brings us to verse 24, and this is where it gets incredibly interesting. After some days, remember who Felix is. Remember who he is? He's a pretty corrupt guy. He's self centered. He's prideful. He rules authoritarianly and with an iron fist, and he's abusive. And we find out of something else in just a little bit. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul. He says, I want to meet with Paul. Has nothing to do with the trial. I want to meet with Paul, and basically what it it seems like he's saying is, I want to have a more accurate understanding of the way. I want to have a more accurate understanding of the way. So he sends for for Paul, and Paul comes to he and Drusilla, and notice what Paul does. Paul comes, verse 25, and he reasons about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment. Paul comes and he gets together with Felix and the first thing he does is he starts talking to Paul. I'm sorry, he starts talking to Felix. He starts explaining what? He starts explaining firstly what is, notice, he starts explaining what is what first. What is righteousness? Now, can I just ask you a quick question? Can you talk about righteousness without talking about unrighteousness? You can't, can you? So even though he gives just, Luke records just a terse statement of what he talks about, this stuff is so loaded. Paul is talking to him, to to Felix and Drusilla about what true righteousness is. And in the midst of that, you know what Paul's doing. He's saying, Felix, Drusilla, this is what right, this is what Jesus stands for. Jesus is absolutely righteous, and this is what righteousness is. And by the way, Felix, that ain't you. Let me tell you how I know it ain't you. You can hear Paul saying that, can't you? Can you not hear Paul saying to Felix, Felix, here's the deal. This is who Jesus is, and that's not you. Let me give you the evidence. This is you and this is you, and this is you, and this is you, and this is you. And each one of those things, and many others I'm sure, is stand, each one of those stands in absolute conflict and contrast to this is Jesus. Do you get the sense that Paul's probably really bold here with this guy? you get that sense? And we only hit one of the three. Next, he he turns to what, according to the text? Self-control. Which, by the way, is one of the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? It's the evidence of righteousness, isn't it? That you're self-controlled, that is, you're not doing what? All those things that are in absolute contrast to righteousness. And so you can hear Paul saying to Felix, Felix, all these things that you're doing that are absolutely in contrast to righteousness, jesus christ and his righteousness it's because you have no what self-control oh and by the way we're not done yet it's because you can't what have self-control and why can't you have self-control
1: because you don't have the holy spirit you have
0: no righteousness and the only righteousness that that can cause self-control is what the righteousness that is Imputed to you, given to you, that alien righteousness, the only... Can you hear Paul saying these things in this text? Can you hear him saying anything but that? (laughs) Of course he's going to be saying that to him. This is an ongoing... Because it says he reasoned with him according to these things. He's declaring these things in detail with Felix. And the third thing he points out to Felix. Yeah. You almost feel like it's a, a, what is that, a K-Tel commercial? Is that what it was? The old commercial on TV? And not only that, it slices, it dices, it even gives Julian fries. And not only that, and not only that, and not but wait! (laughs) There's more! Right? And that's what you hear here. That's what you hear Paul saying. Oh, but we're not done yet, Paul. Or we're not done yet, Felix, because there's more. And finally, because the last part's not there, it's meaningless, Right? Who cares if I don't have rights? if the last part's not there? Who cares if I have no self-control if the last part's not there? Who cares if I am absolutely unrighteous if the last part's not there? But then Paul pulls out the final card as he reasons with Felix and, and Drusilla and he says, finally, not only that, you are not righteous, you are absolutely unrighteous in every way. You stand in absolute opposition to you are the exact negative of Christ, and it's evidence in the way you live in a totally unself-controlled way. But you need to understand something. there's a coming judgment, and it is absolute. And that Jesus will be your judge, Felix. That's what Paul is declaring to Felix. And he lays it all out for him, what that judgment's going to look like, how that judgment is going to be meted out what the final conclusion of that judgment is is it any wonder that Felix's response is portrayed here the way it is do you see what it says what does it say next after the coming judgment what does it say Felix was alarmed <laughs> he was very afraid what does the king james describe it there he trembled you get the sense that the Spirit has used Paul to connect some dots for Felix, right? He trembled. He was very afraid. He was alarmed extremely. How alarmed was he? Yes, but how alarmed does it say it was? he was right there? He sent him away. And that says, Go away! get away from me that's what he's saying he's terrified of what he's terrified of the judgment coming and more importantly right now he's terrified of the judge and he should understand about judgment right because he's been a really bad judge he's been a really unrighteous judge now here's what's interesting about the text you would think at this point in time, Felix being who he is, he would have judged judged Paul right there. Gone. Wouldn't that make sense? But the Spirit's at work. And so he says what? Go away. for the present. Now the only question we have at this point in time is, what's he at work about to accomplish? What is he at work to accomplish? Up to this verse, we don't know. But what's happening is even though Paul was driven away from Felix, by Felix. He says, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So he wants to have further conversation, right? At least it seems that way. At least it seems that way. But then he goes on and says what? At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. He was thinking, he was hoping, yeah, this is terrifying to me, but at the same time, what I, my real hope is where? In Christ? In escaping the judgment? Cash. Cold, hard cash. But he can't get out of his mind, what Paul has said. Can he? It, can't, it won't come out of his mind. And so, what does he do? So he sent for him often and conversed with him. But you get the sense though that what's happening is what? More and more what's fading and more and more what's growing. What's fading is the fear, right? And what's growing is what? The wanting of money, cash. Possibly. Possibly. Absolutely. No question. It's Very possible. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and that's because Felix really was a bad guy. And desired to do do the Jews a favor, Felix left him in prison. So, his last time he was there, you know, his last time before Festus replaces him, he could have let him go. But in his mind, he's thinking, if I keep him there, the Jews will be more happy with me, and at least I'll have friends with the Jews, because the the Romans were like done with him. And so he leaves him there, which brings us into chapter 25. I worked my way through this text with you just now for a very specific reason. We started out by talking about questions, didn't we? Right? Important questions. Questions that say something about us. But What's really interesting is when we take this short story, which is not all that short, but you get the idea, and fold it back into the entirety of the book of Acts, things become really interesting. Acts chapter 1. Jesus says to the disciples stay here in Jerusalem and in a little bit what's going to happen I'm going to send the Spirit and when he I send the Spirit what's going to happen you're going to receive power and when the Spirit falls upon you to receive power you will be what witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the other parts part of the earth remember that we talked about how important that verse was right and sure enough, the disciples are afraid and they're, they're kind of cowering in the upper room in fear and then the Spirit comes upon them and what happens? Everything changes. And the day of Pentecost happens, Peter gets up and he preaches and thousands get saved. And then more thousands get saved. And then more thousands get saved. And then Ananias and Sapphira... <laughs> And the contrast begins, right? And then Stephen gets killed on trumped-up charges. And Peter is front and center. And he's doing what? He's preaching the gospel, isn't he? He's preaching the gospel boldly, isn't he? He has his issues, right, with the Gentiles. But he's preaching the gospel boldly, isn't he? And then chapter 9, Paul who hates Christians and hates the way and hates the Nazarene. He meets the Nazarene on the road to Damascus and he is gloriously redeemed. And all the questions on his mind are changed, aren't they? Aren't they all changed? Every question is changed. And the response to those questions are changed as well. Because Paul doesn't I mean, you would think naturally Paul would go if he changed his sides. He'd go from persecuting and killing and imprisoning Christians to doing what? You would think he'd go to imprisoning, persecuting, and killing Jews. Wouldn't that make sense? It it seems like that's Paul's M.O., isn't it? But no, it goes to what? Because there's different questions, different thoughts, because he's got a new heart. So everything changes and so then the questions are different and the questions in his mind are what who's a believer and who isn't isn't that a question Romans makes it really clear that's his question it's his constant question you're either before you were Jew or Gentile right but now you're all what one in Christ so the only issues is are you in Christ or you're not That's the question for Paul. Are you in Christ or are you not? And it becomes his, if I'm stating this right, his modus operandi. Doesn't it? His mode of operation, his mode of thinking, his, his way of living is, are you in Christ or are you not? And the questions on his computer screen, as it were, in his mind, are all that. And so as a result of that, when the Jews come after him, we saw before, his questions say what? Are they Christians or not? And the answer is evident to Paul, right? That they are Christians or not? They're not. They're in Jerusalem. And so he does what? He proclaims the gospel and is a result, condemns them, doesn't he? And shows that, that Je- in effect, he's showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. They don't like that, and so they take him to trial. Of course, the tribune takes him from them, because they want to take him and kill him. And then from there, he goes to Felix. And, but the whole time, even after, even after the Roman soldiers take him up to the barracks and he asks to, to speak, what does he do? To the crowds, he proclaims Jesus. And then he goes before the centurion, I'm sorry, the, the, the tribune, and he does what privately to him? He proclaims Jesus. And then when the Sanhedrin and the and 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 the, and the high priest are all there, he proclaims Jesus. You think there's a pattern? And then he's with Felix. And he does what? He proclaims Jesus. I suspect, by the way, if I may just throw it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak from silence again in the Scriptures. Do you think that maybe on that long journey up to Caesarea, he talked about Jesus a little bit with the soldiers? Do you think? you think maybe he talked to them about Jesus? you think he talked to them about the way about righteousness and self-control and judgment i think he probably did because that's his pattern isn't it then he's talking to felix and he does what repeatedly over and over and over again he's talking about what about jesus and he's talking about jesus in, the, in a very uncomfortable way isn't he put yourself in the room with felix and paul that first time do you think that conversation would sound a little uncomfortable He's speaking to the governor, and he's saying to the governor, Felix, you're unrighteous. Let me count the ways. As an observer, do you think that would sound a little uncomfortable? Just a little bit? But wouldn't we feel a little discomfort as well? Maybe we would because we're not asking the same questions. Of course, it would be uncomfortable to Felix. But maybe, I wonder if if we're sitting, I'm just wondering, if we're sitting there hearing it, I wonder if we'd be uncomfortable with that conversation as Paul's talking. And I say that, if I may just point this out to you, I say that because I, I can tell you many times when I've been talking to an unsaved person and there's another Christian there with me, and they try to modify my words. That's happened many times for me as I've been talking to an unsaved person and there's another christian claimed to be a believer with me and that other christian starts to try to modify my words trying to calm them not calm down the emotion of it but calm down the meaning to cool down the discomfort you know that tells me that person is uncomfortable that supposed christian is uncomfortable with that why would we be uncomfortable with that well the reason why we'd be uncomfortable is because we're asking different questions but here's the most important thing. We see a pattern in Paul, don't we? And the pattern is this declaration that is in, inherently uncomfortable. Inherently uncomfortable for the recipient. Has to be, because why? Because the Bible says that Jesus is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. So for Paul, that offense has to be there, right? But for most Christians today, most people who claim to be Christians, what we want more than anything else is for that offense to be where? Anywhere but where I am. Does that make sense? And as a result, we don't talk to unbelievers about Jesus because we don't want that. It's not even on our radar screen. Other things are more important. And what's not important is making the person feel uncomfortable we want this conversation to be comfortable we want this conversation to be at ease and we've gotten to the point where most gospel presentation programs are trying to teach people how to give an unoffensive gospel they would never use that term but that's what they're trying to do the gospel is inherently offensive you cannot remove the offense without destroying not damaging but destroying the gospel He was alarmed. Can I ask you a quick question? When was the last time you were talking to someone about Jesus and they were alarmed? When was the last time you had a conversation with an unbeliever and they were alarmed at your conversation? That's a challenging question, isn't it? Now, please understand, I'm not trying to say that, I'm not trying to say, Listen, people, we've got to go out and try to make people uncomfortable. (laughs) The gospel does that. The real question is, why are we uncomfortable with the gospel? That's the real question. Why are we uncomfortable with the gospel? Because you know we are, if that doesn't show up on our computer screen in our mind, as we meet people we don't know if they're believers or not, it doesn't show up in our mind. Why? Because we're uncomfortable with the gospel and ultimately we're uncomfortable with Jesus. And why is it that, that, that so often it doesn't show up when I come to a believer who I, I know claims to be a believer and evidences it, but it's not even on my radar screen to talk about those things. Why is that? Because can I tell you something? Do you know that Ken needs the gospel today? And as a non-glorified being, yet he has Christ righteousness, but he's not glorified yet. He's still breathing right here. He's not glorified. He's not in heaven. The gospel is still a stone of stumbling to him. And it's still a stone of stumbling to me. You know why? Because I still sin. And you still sin. And we sin because ultimately we really enjoy our sin still don't we we find value in it and the gospel calls me to an account and examine what my value system is is my value system Christ from him through him to him to him be glory forever amen or is it something else it's uncomfortable We're given this story in detail. Because it's, it's, it's a quite ex- extensive detail, isn't it? We're given this detailed story for a very specific reason. It's not because we, we, we need to be like Paul, but it causes it's us to ask ourselves, where is my heart with regard to Jesus? Where is my thoughts with regard to Jesus? Where on my priority system is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Where on my priority system is the privilege, the glory, the praiseworthiness of being grafted into the vine? Where is it on my priority system? What is it that I need to repent from and repent to with regard to Jesus? Yeah, it's interesting. This morning as I was sitting in the in the dining room in, in our dining room eating breakfast, <clears throat> Ruth had bought a box of Entman donuts. Or chocolate donuts. You know, the ones they're they're there's the vanilla in the inside, vanilla cake, and then chocolate on the outside. And I was looking at I don't like chocolate, so I don't care. But I'm looking at them, and all of a sudden this morning, I noticed something. Do you know they're not labeled chocolate donuts? You know that? They're not called chocolate donuts. They look chocolate. Everybody calls them chocolate donuts. They're not chocolate donuts. They're donuts. They have a hole in the middle. They're not chocolate donuts. You know what they're called? Frosted donuts. And I looked at that. I said, frosted donuts? They're chocolate donuts. And I flipped it over and read the ingredients. They're not chocolate donuts. (laughs) They're not. They're chemical donuts. They're made by a chemist. And they're colored to look brown like chocolate. And then they got some sort of wax over them so they don't stick with each other, on each other. But they're not chocolate, which is why legally they can't call them chocolate donuts. They call them frosted, which set my mind to wondering because what's the difference between frosted donuts and frosted flakes? One's got a white thing to it and the other one's got chocolate color to it. I started thinking, what what else is frosted that I'm thinking is something else? And then I started realizing, yeah, it's kind of like frosted Christianity. Right? But there's no Christ. There's no Christ. Christ doesn't show up on the computer screen in our mind. It doesn't show up on our priority system. It doesn't show up anywhere. But we say we are Christians. Are we? The call of the Scriptures, I think, is really clear. Whether we are like Felix and we're lost as the day is long. Or whether we are people who have grown up in the church, prayed a prayer, walked out, raised a hand. Or whether we're really even growing in Christ. The answer is always the same. Seek Him while He may be found. But frosted Christianity leaves something to be desired, doesn't it? It's missing something if you like chocolate. Right, Lois? (laughs) It's missing something, isn't it? And ultimately, it's not very satisfying if you're really a chocolate aficionado. Does that make sense? If you're a a true lover of chocolate, an intimate frosted donut that looks chocolate is going to leave you disappointed, won't it? It's not going to measure up. And anybody who truly knows chocolate knows it. And frosted Christianity is going to leave anyone who truly knows Jesus sadly disappointed. So I would like to close by just asking a question Are you frosted? Are you frosted? Is that it? You got a look of Christianity? Yeah, but you're not. Or is your heart warmed and warming greater and greater for Jesus? Because if your heart is warmed for Jesus by the Spirit and growing ever warmer for Jesus, you know what's going to happen? You're going to start to see that priority structure changing. Because that's what happens, that's what the Spirit does. Doesn't, doesn't mean you need to change it. It's going to happen. When I find myself reveling in Christ, I find myself not reveling in other things. And the priorities start to change. And as the priorities start to change, you know what starts to happen? My priorities begin to evidence themselves on my lips. Does that make sense? It begins to show itself in my thoughts about those around me. And in my words, things begin to change. And Christ is magnified. Could I submit to you? Here's Paul in front of Felix who you have him killed with with a, a joke trial. And Paul just sits there and proclaims Christ. Too often, as people who claim to be believers, we're just afraid that we may lose a friend or an acquaintance. Or there's somebody we don't even know. We've just met. And they may dislike me. But if we look at ourselves carefully, we'll discover there's all sorts of things in our lives we don't care if they don't like us. Priorities. Seek him while he may be found. Drink deeply at the fountain. Learn of Jesus. Taste and see. Enjoy his gospel, because that's where Paul came from and is continuing in, right? I will close with this statement, but you, Timothy, continue with what you've learned and become convinced of. Because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for correction, for reproof, for instruction. I missed one of them. There's four of them. I got that one, but the first one, what's the first one? again? Rebuking. That's the one I missed, rebuking that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And in giving us the Holy Spirit, he opens our eyes to see the scriptures and we are transformed. And that transformation evidences itself in changed minds and changing minds, changed words and changing words, changed lives, changing lives. Amen? Let's pray and ask God to do his perfect work in us, shall we? Lord, help us. Help us not to walk down the path that ultimately ends up in Demas leaving Paul because he loved this present world. Protect us from walking down the path that ultimately, although seeming innocent so early, ultimately ends up being like the Corinthian church and rejecting the things of the gospel. Protect us from being like the the Asian church that left Paul. Protect us toward Jesus. Warm our hearts. Convict us. Make us uncomfortable with the truth, with Jesus, so that we look to the author and perfecter of faith. Discipline us as you see fit to draw us close so that we are people who love you, glorify you, and start to see that all things are from you, through you, and to you for your glory. Forever. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?